0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice.
1: Well, welcome again to another in a series of interviews with the uh, experts. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Charlie Jane, uh, who's one of my colleagues who, who's a member of the Division of Structural Heart Disease and is a specialist in adult congenital heart disease. Uh, so welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. Honored to be here. Yeah, so th- this looks like a, you know, we're going to have a very interesting discussion, I uh, feel, and and we're talking about pregnancy and simple congenital heart disease. So maybe I would just ask you to uh, tell us why you think this topic is so important.
0: Yeah, thank you, that's a great question. You know, just to start out, I think it's really, uh, when we think about pregnancy and simple congenital heart disease, it's really important for lots of different types of clinicians, Um, of course, from adult congenital heart disease specialists, but a lot of these patients are seen in the community. So for general cardiologists, and then of course, for our colleagues in obstetrics and maternal fetal medicine um, as well as family practice they may be seeing a lot of these patients even for general practitioners um, these patients will be seen in your clinic and common questions do come up
1: so you you use the term uh, simple congenital heart disease so maybe you could just list off what what you mean by that and I assume that we're we're excluding cyanotic uh, heart disease but uh, maybe just Tell us what what the most common simple congenital heart disease uh, conditions uh, may be as as we're discussing this topic. Yeah, that's fair. And I know to many people,
0: congenital heart disease always sounds complex. But when we look at it from a congenital heart disease standpoint, our guidelines previously separated into simple, moderate, and complex lesions. So I'll be referring to that reference. So when we think about simple congenital heart disease, that's generally talking about atrial septal defects, ASDs, ventricular septal defects, VSDs. Coarctation of the aorta and pulmonic stenosis. And when we think about why would, we, why would you be seeing these patients if you're not a congenital heart disease specialist, well, there's been improved recognition of these diagnoses in early childhood and then improved management. So many of these patients are living longer. And certainly we have more and more women of childbearing age with congenital heart disease that was corrected early on in life. In addition, because we're diagnosing more and more things now with improvements in technology, a lot of these di- diseases are being diagnosed at the time of pregnancy. You know, pregnancy presents uh, incredible hemodynamic stress to the cardiovascular system and to the whole body. And so, for patients who are previously compensated with simple congenital heart disease, sometimes they'll actually present during pregnancy, um, and then their diagnosis will become more apparent at that time.
1: So that's interesting. So let's just to start off with uh, what what you consider to be the most common congenital heart disease, simple, and and for me, uh, there's not often a, a simple congenital heart disease uh, you know, patient that we see. So, but let's start off with uh, what what you consider to be the most common, and then how how would that sort of impact the pregnancy? What sort of symptoms might they have?
0: So in terms of the most simple congenital heart disease, by far the most common will be atrial septal defects. And whether they're repaired or not, honestly, most of them do very well with pregnancy. And when we think about atrial septal defects, it's a volume loading to the right heart system, and there's potential complications that can occur from that. And then as pregnancy is also a volume loading situation to the entire heart, you know, it's possible that they could decompensate and present with problems. So one of the things that we'll commonly see for patients with atrial septal defects during pregnancy will be atrial arrhythmias, either new onset or recurrence. So, you know, if you have a patient with a known ASD and they're pregnant and they're complaining of palpitations, rather than reassure them, as we may for some other patients, if the patient's palpitations sound relatively innocent, it might have a lower threshold for putting on a Holter monitor or something like that, as they will have higher likelihood of potentially more significant atrial arrhythmias. In addition, of course, they could present with right heart failure, but fortunately, that's not all that common. And then rarely, at least in the published literature, though the literature is relatively scant, surprisingly, they are at risk for paradoxical embolism, um, either during the course of pregnancy or at the time of delivery. And so that's something we have to be cognizant of, certainly. And then in terms of the babies, when we think about ASDs, um, there's increased pulmonary flow relative to systemic flow. And so, as systemic flow is relatively lower than it should be for the mother, um, the baby will also feel that lower systemic flow. So, in terms of fetal complications, if it's a large ASD, certainly the baby could be lower
1: birth weight. So, uh, what what about uh, ventricular septal defects? Uh, How how commonly uh, might you see that in this population? And either, you know, previously recognized or uh, newly recognized.
0: Ventricular septal defects, most of them do well. Again, that's kind of assuming that they're either small or moderate at lar- largest in size. Um, and then also assuming that they don't have significant pulmonary hypertension, as you mentioned earlier, cyanotic heart disease, Eisenmenger. And then also assuming that they don't have significant left heart dysfunction, left ventricular ejection fraction to decreased. But honestly, whether they're repaired or not, if they're small, Um, or even up to moderate in size, most of them do quite well. I honestly haven't cared for many that were diagnosed during the time of pregnancy, but for many women, it is the time when they're getting medical care when they may have not since for many years.
1: Um, So that is very common that it could come up potentially. So, you know, and you've mentioned a couple of times here, repaired or not. So as, as we think about ASDs and VSDs that have been repaired, and the patient has little or no evidence of residual cardiac dysfunction, do you anticipate any problems with those patients uh, during uh, pregnancy?
0: Great question. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's not a lot of literature for that question in pregnancy, but kind of expanding upon the literature from outside of the setting of pregnancy, how do those patients do? And so when we think about atrial septal defects, while most of them do very well and seem to have normal life expectancy, you know, there's literature from here from, almost 30 years ago now showing that they still have increased incidence of atrial arrhythmias and there's even some more um, exercise studies showing that their atrial compliance isn't entirely normal either. While most of them would do well they still are not at this similar risk to the general population of women getting pregnant um, without any heart disease. For VSDs kind of similarly um, once again not a lot of data for pregnancy and repair VSDs that I'm familiar with but we expect that most of them will do well, and again, in the absence of significant pulmonary hypertension or left ventricular dysfunction.
1: Any other uh, conditions that you'd like to, to highlight here uh, in terms of the ones that we uh, may see in these patients? I keep saying patients, of course, but you know that they're, they're women, right, uh, undergoing with a, uh, with a pregnancy.
0: I think another important simple congenital heart disease to go over is coarctation of the aorta, and I want to emphasize this in the sense that there's so much literature now about the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and the implications of course at the time of pregnancy as well as in the future for atherosclerotic heart disease and in terms of coarctation of the aorta even if it was repaired in childhood all these patients men and women have an increased likelihood of having systemic hypertension even in the absence of any other stressor and so if you have a woman who had prior history of coarctation which was repaired Remember, congenital heart disease may be repaired, but it's never cured, as Dr. Warren's always said. And so these patients, if they are hypertensive, even the very least, I would really um, hone in on that and have a low threshold for treating them as they have a vasculopathy at their core. And the threshold for treating should be quite
1: low in those patients and for monitoring it should be quite low as well. Yeah, and you mentioned Dr. Warren, so we're talking about Dr. Carol Warren, who's really been a master in this field for a very long time with respect to adult congenital heart disease and pregnancy. Recognizing that you've got a patient who has one of these simple congenital heart disease abnormalities, and they're pregnant, what would be your uh, general recommendations? And let me just start off asking: Do they need to be seen by a specialist in congenital heart disease, or is this something that the general cardiologist should be able to manage themselves? It's a
0: great question. I think it's challenging to answer, given you know there's such a wide spectrum of disease, even for simple congenital heart disease. In brief, as long as they've had a thorough evaluation by a cardiologist knowledgeable about the disease, and you know, oftentimes that will be a congenital heart disease specialist and that evaluation's been in the recent past, then I think that's the most important thing. What we generally recommend is that if it's a new diagnosis during pregnancy or if it's a known diagnosis, that they contact us in the first trimester of pregnancy or as soon as the diagnosis is made, and we do a thorough evaluation at that time. I think in ideal circumstances, they should have an echocardiogram in the first trimester. Um, toward the end of the first trimester is what we usually do. And we'll have, of course, a complete physical exam and assessment at that time. And that'll help us gauge how closely to follow them during the pregnancy and whether or not they could be managed locally with a general cardiologist and maternal fetal medicine, or if they need to be delivered at a higher level of care. I, I think it depends on the patient. You know, for the patients that we're particularly concerned about, we'll see them multiple times throughout the pregnancy, echocardiograms, you know, at least once a trimester, multiple physical exams. And close monitoring but for many of these women with simple congenital heart disease assessing them in the first trimester with an echocardiogram that will likely be adequate for many of them from a conservative standpoint we may do an echocardiogram early in the third trimester as well around 30 to 32 weeks when the peaks of the hemodynamic stressors of pregnancy are kind of present and then they start to plateau after that so in the simplest sense for our care we will often see the patients in the first and third trimester with an echocardiogram even for those who are doing well but many of these patients could probably be followed in the community. And then we're always happy to guide care remotely
1: as possible. And of course, you know some of these patients may be on cardiac medications, and obviously you would weigh in on which ones uh, safe to continue in, in terms of fetal uh, health, and which ones may need to be, you know, stopped uh, at at any given point. But but that's maybe just a, a, another discussion there. Mm-hmm. And up until now, you know, you've been talking about the maternal health. You know, how how is their heart uh, handling this? You mentioned earlier about some of the physiological, you know, hemodynamic changes in some of these conditions uh, in the fetus. Maybe you could just uh, briefly tell us about what sort of monitoring would be required, additional monitoring over and above uh, what we would typically see in in a patient uh, with a pregnancy. Sure, that's a great question. I think in terms
0: of kind of getting to your initial part of the question about medications and then also in terms of the other physiologic changes for these patients, in general, it all relates to how much flow is getting to the baby compared to a woman who doesn't have these conditions or these medications. And so low birth weight of the fetuses or the babies is very common and something we have to be wary of. So for patients who are on beta blockers, whether it's a low dose or a high dose, we'll often recommend more frequent fetal ultrasounds after the 20th week of pregnancy. And you know, usually they may get ultrasounds every eight to 12 weeks after that, you know, um, or not until the third trimester. But for those patients on beta blockers, we'll often do fetal ultrasounds every four weeks to monitor the baby's weight very closely. Similarly, for women with VSDs or coarctation, both of those will have lower blood flow to the baby if it's significant coarctation or if it's a significant VSD. And so low birth weight may be a concern. We don't routinely do more frequent fetal ultrasounds for those patients, but certainly we would tailor the approach to the individual patient depending on their degree of abnormality and the concerns raised by the fetal ultrasound usually around 20 weeks.
1: You know, and I, I think we can all assume that uh, during, throughout this period, that there's been close communication with the uh, OB team. So now the patient, uh, well, the woman is in the, the delivery room or about to go to a delivery room. Tell us about uh, what things are going through your mind uh, uh, at that stage with respect, to you know, again, with your know, communication to the uh, OB specialists, uh, anesthesiologists, and you know, and how many of these uh, women will be able to have a, a normal uh, vaginal delivery uh, f- from the cardiac standpoint you know, versus a C-section? Right,
0: great question. So I think you mentioned this, this idea of this team, it's multidisciplinary care. These patients can be quite complex, even if their disease is relatively simple from one perspective. So we emphasize this idea of this pregnancy heart team, this multidisciplinary team, and as you mentioned, you know, a cardiologist, maternal field medicine often and the anesthesiologists being core members but it includes nurses social workers uh, advanced imaging specialists interventionalists so i mean these patients can come across all areas of cardiology obstetrics and other fields of medicine so it's really important and we're lucky here that we have a cardioobstetrics clinic and a lot of that is coordinated but in terms of these patients at the time of delivery given the focus here today about simple congenital heart disease i'll probably say two things For patients with atrial septal defects, I mentioned briefly earlier, the risk of paradoxical embolism. And while that risk is relatively low, certainly for all patients hooked up with an IV, we'd recommend that they have PFO filters at the very least, just to try and minimize any iatrogenic embolism. Then otherwise, there are some studies talking about whether or not these patients should warrant blood thinners around the time of peripartum management. And I think that depends on the patient, the size of the ASD and their other risk factors. In terms of mode of delivery, things have really changed in the past 10 to 20 years that we're reserving C section for cardiac indications to very few diagnoses. In other words, if a patient needs to have a C section for obstetrical indications, of course we go with that. But from a cardiac perspective, it's quite rare that now we're recommending C section. Um, And in terms of simple congenital heart disease, I can't really think of a situation. We would generally prefer vaginal delivery unless there's an obstetric concern or a fetal concern. Um, in terms of the diagnoses which we usually do think about being uh, indication for C-section, that would fall under things like severe pulmonary hypertension, which is not, you know simple congenital heart disease. and then if they have severe aortic dilation, criteria for severe depends on the underlying abnormality. But those are really the only two times we're entertaining C-section and talking to the team, maternal field medicine team up front about
1: that. Charlie, I, I don't think we have uh, any more time here, but th- this has really been fascinating. We we don't talk about these things uh, probably uh, enough. And and in fact, we here and in, in, in recently now have a uh, an official cardio OB clinic here where uh, I think many of these patients are, are now going to be seen. So I I think this is really incredibly um, useful information uh, to our cardiologists, you know, who will be uh, listening and and watching us today, but also I think to uh, any women who do have uh, congenital heart disease in this simple category, uh, of course, uh, who are contemplating uh, pregnancy. So thank you uh, so much again for your uh, time and and joining us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. Honored to participate.